0: Being black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast.
1: Yeah, what's going on? What's going on? How's your week been?
0: Um, it's been pretty good. I can't complain. Um, been just grinding in regard to getting this dissertation research done. It's the, the last stretch. Um, but also trying to balance, like, work hard with playing hard. So, you know, I've been also living my best life, so...
1: Mm. Sounds like you had some fun recently.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, You know, it's funny because I I actually went out this weekend to like a 90s themed 40th birthday party and I had a blast. But, you know, it's funny because I also realized I'm now the old head. You know how like when you were younger and you would hear about those like parties for like 30 and 40 year olds and you're like, oh, my God, they so old. (laughs) That's me that's me and it was like i don't think anybody like younger than like 30 was in the building and we had a good time listening to like 80s and 90s rap and r&b and we were just dancing i'm like oh my god i'm that person now
1: yeah the good times you know I, i feel like today's flow is like they don't they don't dance like they used to at parties
2: Right. I
1: feel like everybody be chilling, but little parties back in the day, everybody be like having a good time dancing. You know what
0: I mean? Uh-huh. And that's what I was thinking. Like even a lot of the rap songs like back in the day. And I mean, I guess we can see some of that now with like, you know, Juju on a beat and stuff like that. But like the Bankhead Bounce and like it was a lot of like rap songs back in the day that had like dances to them. And it was just like real feel-good music, like yeah. feel-good rap. So, yeah, mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. And so, it was probably a little cleaner too.
0: yeah yeah it was well if you're not talking about like so I'm from the south y'all and crunk music like southern crunk oh, music crunk. where you just like bouncing around it's like it's like rock music cuz you like it would be like people just like bouncing around the club like like heavy metal rockers you would yeah. see in the club
1: mm-hmm. like uh, the mosh pits and stuff yeah
0: yeah i won't lie like i love that too so we did have a little bit of that that wasn't always clean but oh well,
1: yeah the crunk music yeah of course that, <laughs> that that that's always good for a good turn up oh yeah that sounded like a fun party
0: yeah it was Which <laughs>
1: What have you been up to? Um, I ain't been up to nothing really. Um, just chilling this weekend. And went to my little nephew's birthday party. Turned eight, you know. So it was like this little sporting spot, watching him play flag football, and then it was funny at the end. They got all the adults. They played. They were playing dodgeball, and then at the end, they had all the adults play dodgeball against the kids.
0: Oh wow! That is So, funny.
1: so we was up in there pegging them little boys.
0: I can't imagine like no mercy on these kids.
1: <laughs> yeah, man, we was whipping them balls hard, boy. That was too funny. So did y'all win? Yeah, we won. Of course, we couldn't let them eight year olds beat us.
0: I mean, technically, (laughs) you should
1: have, you know, child. Uh, But no, it was fun. They had a good time. They was laughing about it. Got to, you know, play against the adults. But they was really taking I was really saying they was going hard against their moms, though. (laughs) A lot of them little boys was uh, uh, throwing the ball hard, hard as heck, against their moms. I was like, dang, have some respect. (laughs) But it was funny, though.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a good time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, little
1: kids. I was telling Chris, I was like, you know, a little kid parties be some of the funnest parties, man. They be having the good food and cake and sodas. <laughs>
0: right, right. Take you back to childhood. Yeah.
1: Sometimes we get to, we try to be a little too fancy, us adults.
0: Yeah, yeah. we are doing <laughs> too much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: But all right, uh, let's get into some old oh Lord news. I'm sure we got some things. Yes. That happened this week, I'm sure.
0: Yes, we do.
1: All right, let's get into it. Hello. And welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening O Lord news of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say.
0: Okay, so speaking of sports, uh, have you heard of, or do you know the name, Michael Avenatti?
1: Nah, it doesn't ring a bell.
0: Okay, so he is the lawyer that uh, helped to bring attention to uh, the Stormy Daniels case with Donald Trump. Okay. And I he was also somehow involved with um, R. Kelly stuff. I, I don't mm. know. But speaking of sports, he was recently... Uh, indicted on charges saying that he tried to bribe Nike. Bribe Nike? Um, yes. Indicted uh, over some charges related to potential like bribery related to NCAA finance violations or issues. So I guess mm. they're saying that he was going to keep some things. He offered to keep some things on a low if they would pay him. Now, he's denying yeah. this, but what happened over the weekend is that he did a huge data dump in Dropbox that showed Nike paying money to some, the families of top players to convince them, allegedly, to go to Nike sponsored schools. such so as Duke. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, in the Dropbox, it shows evidence of Nike making payments to associates of former Arizona star DeAndre Atten, who now plays for the Phoenix Sun, Oregon's Bobo, uh, a former UNLV player, Brandon McCoy. Um, it's like 41 pages of documents, like, and it's payments as like high as like $83,000. Um, and it looks like it might potentially take down some, some top programs.
1: Oh boy. That's going to be interesting. Now I got to follow this.
0: Um. So have you heard of Zion Williamson? Well, that's what I was about to say. Yes. So... (laughs) It um is alleged that uh, Zion Williamson's mother received quote, him fees as a bribe to Nike. Now, that payment was not in those Dropbox files. I don't know if he's holding that because, you know, we saw how he kind of operated with the whole Stormy Daniels thing that, you know, sometimes he keeps stuff up his sleeve. Uh, but it's interesting because now it's kind of like people are questioning, like, is this indictment used to kind of like tarnish his credibility so people won't believe the ncaa stuff so i i don't know but it's a mess
1: child it's about to be wild um one you know as a knicks fan i am really really hoping that we get zion williamson Mm -hmm. so i've been following him all season uh but i would say some red flags was raised so i didn't know anything about this story but i'm sure you saw when zion busted out his shoe few weeks ago. Yes, yes. And so And everybody was getting on Nike because, of course, like you said, Duke Nike program, he was wearing Nike shoes. Um, and so, you know, people were like, oh, are you going to sit? Are you going to keep playing, you know, after this? Because, you know, he's pretty much going to be number one overall going to the league. Mm-hmm. And people were interested to see what he was going to say when he came back. And when he came back, he was just like, You know what I'm saying? I love Nike this, I love Nike that. You know what I'm saying? Nike this, that, and third. Everybody was like, hmm, this is interesting (laughs) because your shoe, you just busted out their shoe, almost could have ended your career. And everybody's like, you know, is he going to sign with Nike or Adidas? You know what I'm saying? It like opens the door, but he came back just really um, talking about how much he loved Nike. And people were like, that don't sound all the way right. so now that you say this story and, you know, of course, Nike, because everybody was going in on Nike. And so if he would have came out and be like, yeah, bump Nike, that would have really hurt their reputation. But he came out saying the opposite. So people were already figuring, like, maybe maybe Nike got do some money his way uh, and, and kept it quiet. And so now this is even more interesting. Yeah. backstory.
0: I have a question uh, because I don't know how it works. So if there was some type of you know, violations and stuff like that, would that end his career or would he just get, like, type a fine or something like that?
1: For Zion? Yeah. No, because more than likely he's, I mean, the season's over for him and he's probably going to declare soon that he's going to go to the league. Um, so this has happened in the past with corruption and scandals. Oftentimes the players, they just say, yep, whatever, buy deuces, and they go to the league. So they don't get too much affected by it. What happens is the program can be affected, mm-hmm. where Duke can like get into a lot of trouble, pay fines, people can be suspended or fired, or they can they may not even be able to to play for some odd time if it's all found to be true in these violations. Um, so this has always been a controversy too, because in the past some players have had these issues, the program gets affected, and they go right to the league. Uh, so yeah, Zion probably won't get into too much trouble if anything, maybe some financial fines or something like that down the line, uh, but yeah.
0: Oh, okay. That was just interesting. Now, I'm completely not against uh, these players being paid or receiving some type of stipend. It just, it got to be, you know, on the up and up. It needs to be transparent. Mm -hmm. And it needs to be something that happens across the board, you know?
1: Yeah. But it doesn't surprise me that, you know, Nike does this or potentially might do this. You know, it's just... It's a lot when you have somebody like Zion, uh, who was like big, like LeBron was when LeBron was about to go to the league, wearing your sneakers and promoting your sneakers. That's a lot. That's, that's a lot of marketing, a lot of money. And so it's like, Zion probably is getting some kind of kickback under the table, uh, with that.
0: Um, but it's,
1: I mean, like, if this is like, you'll get a lot of trouble, man, if this is true, cause they're a brand that should know better, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, uh, well, uh, yeah. Now I'm interested. So I'm definitely going to keep my eyes on this one.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. So, uh, this other story is kind of wacky and crazy. So, a former nurse in Zambia was diagnosed with terminal cancer and made a shocking confession on her deathbed. Mm. Listen to this. Okay. She was like, May the Lord give me for my sins. And her sin as she stated it, was during the years of 1983 to 1995, she worked as a nurse in a uh, maternity ward. And she, for fun, switched more than 5,000 babies. What? Yes. Whoa. Yes. She said, um you know, don't know why she did it. She just, you know, kind of did it for fun that she knows she probably caused, like, divorces because, like, somebody gets, like, a, yeah. a <laughs> test. And uh, so, yeah, she's asking for forgiveness um, and also telling people to take a good look at their sibling because um, that might be an indication that uh, you, you wow. might be the one in that, that- family.
1: That's sick, man. Mm-hmm. That, that That's not, first of all, why would you do that for fun? That's a sick way to have fun. Because you're ruining people's lives, man. Yes. Oh, man. That's yes. crazy. That's insane. 5,000? 5, 5,000.
0: That's a lot
1: of people, a lot of babies. And far. I
0: mean, you that's think wild. about it, it was over a 12-year period. So, you know, yeah. hundreds of babies are born any probably given week in a hospital so it's it's very possible that it's it's very true and I don't I don't know how it is in Zambia like I mean in the U.S. people could probably do like 23 and me and like potentially find their real parents and siblings but I'm not sure how it is in Zambia
1: yeah that's oh man that's wild yeah, And nobody caught on to that for that long,
0: too. And if, like, like the thing is, if they did, they might have thought, like, oh, this person, like, cheated, or they probably never considered that, you know, someone was switched at birth.
1: Yeah. Oh, man. I can only imagine, like, just people finding that out. Kids, the parents, the spouses. You get somebody as they get older. You're like, this baby, this baby don't look like mine.
0: Yeah, and it's so sad, because... You know, if you're the only child that just, you know, you don't look like anybody else in the family, you know, yeah. you might have questions, so. Mm.
1: Well, at yeah. least, I mean, this also, this confession probably will help, hopefully help some families out as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And prompt an investigation, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah. Especially if they went to that hospital, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Okay. OK, so this next story, um, you know, we can't come to too many conclusions, you know, kind of based on some other recent news uh, issues, but there have been three historically Black churches uh, that have recently been burned down in St. Landry Parish um, in Louisiana.
1: Yeah, heard about this.
0: Yeah. And that's just kind of alarming. Um, I, I'm going to be honest with the recent Jesse Smollett uh, hoax or alleged, I don't know. I don't know what that was. I'm just keep my mouth shut on that. (laughs) But, um, I, I don't know. Like I really would like to an investigation to see like who's behind this. Uh, I really hope it's not a, uh, you know, somebody pranking people with the hopes of like, you know, increasing like racial tensions or yeah. or something like that. Uh, but it's also scary. You know, you hope that it's not like a domestic terrorist who's, you know, burning down black churches. Like, I don't know what I hope it is, but, you know, raise some attention about that happening.
1: Yeah, the fact that three black church- churches have been targeted, it's no coincidence somebody's doing this. But yeah, like you said, looking at what happened with Jesse and stuff, now it's like, we all have to pause before drawing conclusions, you know, because we'd be out here like, yo, catch this white man and it might be one of our own doing mm-hmm, this. And mm-hmm. so um, this, this is just it's a crazy situation. But you got to keep our eyes on that. I'm sure they'll catch the culprit, whoever it is.
0: Yeah. Sooner rather than later. And it's also the fact that uh, last month, actually, a black member of a predominantly black church in Greenville, Mississippi, actually pleaded guilty to burning his church and putting "Vote Trump" on it. So that's oh. why it's like you. Uh.
1: Oh man! <laughs> oh man. All these people doing is just giving the other side more ammo. Yeah,
0: I'm, I'm gonna say, look, folk. Let people destroy themselves. You do not have to help them. Yeah, yeah, pretty you, much. You don't have to help it. So uh, we will be following that story.
1: Mm-hmm. I saw somebody, I saw some comedian or something. He was making a joke about Jussie and was like, if like MAGA people really wanted to go beat him up now, nah, they could. Cause he's like nobody. Nobody
0: would believe, would believe him. it. The <laughs>
1: wolf. If somebody did have some maga hats, maga hats, and jumped them and everything like that, and then he would go report, and be like, "All right, just we heard this story before, man." <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's why you got to be truthful, people. You got to right. be truthful.
0: Mm-mm-mm. And this this last story kind of I feel like gets us into our topic for today because um, lawyers are going to be at the forefront of uh, some political and legal issues that have been happening recently. So over the last month or so, four or five southern states have enacted anti-abortion laws that they know without a shadow of a doubt are unconstitutional. And -hmm. they are doing it with the hopes of triggering a Supreme Court case or hearing to overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, So the latest uh, law uh, was from Alabama lawmakers who would punish abortion providers with up to 99 years in prison for performing abortions. And other states such as Georgia and South Carolina and Kentucky have recently enacted like heartbeat bills to say like, you, you know, women cannot get abortions you know after a heartbeat is detected which is generally before they even realize that they are pregnant um and it's crazy because the lawmakers are explicitly stating that like we don't care if it's unconstitutional like that's not what this is about it's about getting this to the supreme court since the supreme court is now leaning conservative
1: Mm. Uh this, I, I just don't understand why people go so hard to force people to have babies, man. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. Like you who are you to make somebody have a baby? And the thing about it is it's like anything we do in this country when we try to like completely um, stop people from doing something, it doesn't stop it. All it does is make it more dangerous, right? If, they, if people want to have abortions, they still will. You know, and it'll just be more dangerous for for the mom and for the baby or what have you. Um, it, it's not going to stop people from having abortions. It's just not. Yeah. This false belief that it will is ridiculous.
0: And for me, I look at this as like we are playing like politics with people's lives. And, you know, this is just one of a series of issues that, you know, is happening in the United States uh, to where, you know, we have long legal battles of ahead of us in terms of determining the rights of people whether it's the rights of uh mothers, unborn children, uh immigrants like we have a lot of legal battles ahead of us and who's going to be at the forefront of those battles lawyers
1: mhm lawyers and and before yeah before we get about today's topic too another interesting thing that I wanted to address about lawyers as well cuz i know people probably have a lot of questions is with the Nipsey Hussle case and (laughs) the guy named Eric Holder is the guy who, uh, you know, committed the the homicide and his lawyer, who also was a part of like the OJ Simpson trial way Mm -hmm. back when, um, yes, has pleaded not guilty in this case. Uh, with with Eric Holder. And I know a lot of people are probably questioning like how on earth can he plead not guilty Uh, because there's video footage. There were a bunch of different witnesses there that saw it happen and the driver has also said it. Um, But what's more likely than not going to happen, it seems like he's setting himself up to plead, try to plead the insanity plea Mm -hmm. is what it looks like. Um, Because when he was captured, he was catcher, checking himself into a mental facility, mental health facility, um, which is probably done with intent as well. And then he has some history of mental illness. Um, and so the only rationale I can believe is why you would say not guilty is so you can say that he's going to try to say that he was um not aware of what he was doing all his mental facilities, which is not going to work, but this is more like what they're trying to do.
0: So I want to say, because I do, I've watched like the OJ series. um, I think it was on like FX or whatnot.
1: With Cuba Gooden? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I watched it too.
0: (laughs) It it seemed like Chris Darden was a little bit salty about like the OJ thing. Do you think this is like payback? Like... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, okay. cause I mean, I don't think anybody in, you know, the black community wants this person to get off, especially because there's so much evidence and it's just kind of like, everybody's like, Chris Darden, how, how could you like, that's yep. what I'm saying. Like, he might be like, mm.
1: I'm, okay, I'm gonna you're gonna try,
0: try it, but
1: <laughs> yeah it's not it's not gonna work
0: though. <laughs> there's
1: no way it's too much evidence and the way and I was telling my students too because they had a lot of questions about it one is that you know the insanity plea is only comes up in about one percent or less than one percent of all trials mm-hmm. and I know they did a study in New York City and they looked at like 172 cases I believe or 176 or something like that that tried the insanity plea. And only actually 17 of those cases went to trial and only four of those cases actually won the verdict. Mm. Um, what's what's why he's trying this is because he fears for his life. Because what happens is if even if you win the plea, it doesn't mean that you are free to go back into the community. You're still institutionalized. So you have to be in a mental health facility indefinitely. And so the position he's in, that's his safest place. Because if he goes to prison, it's you know, his, he's going to be fearing for his life, probably for the rest of his life while he's in there. So he's trying to go to a mental health facility where he would be much safer. Um, uh, but it's rare. People who usually get when the insanity plea are like people who are, you know, um, schizophrenic mm. and they'll be seeing demons and they'll like kill their spouse as to get the demons out of them and then like go and eat breakfast. Right. Mm. Where it's just like, no. Um, it's clear that they really did not know what they were doing and the impact of their actions, mm-hmm. but there's just way too much evidence. I mean, he shot him, he ran away, he was hiding for a couple of days, all that kind of stuff. You knew what you were doing, and it was after a dispute, um, there's too much evidence to show that you know he didn't he didn't have his you know mental facilities enough to to understand what he was doing,
0: yeah. Um,
1: so it's not going to win, but I see the attempt. But yeah, he's silly for taking this up. Man. <laughs> so he can take another L, I guess.
0: Uh, he might like them L's. <laughs> take another L.
1: Um, but yeah, this brings us to our topic uh, today is, you know, we have a returning guest, Professor Anthony Thompson, who last time we talked about reentry, but this time we're talking about his newest book called Dangerous Leaders, mm-hmm. uh, which really explains and discusses the leadership of lawyers in our country and what the approach should be when they are getting in these leadership positions. And you know, one of the biggest things and most interesting things that I found about his book that I really didn't pay attention to before was the fact that lawyers are a lot of our leaders Um, in Fortune 500 companies and politics and nonprofits, activism, whatever it is, um, they do pretty much assume a lot of the leadership positions and how he's pretty much addressing how in law school Um, They're really not taught how to be effective leaders. They're taught the law. They may be taught trial law, whatever, whatever their specialty is, but they're not taught to be effective leaders. So now he's taking this approach where he's like, we really need to look at how we uh, discuss leadership within law programs and with lawyers, because most of them will turn out to be some of our nation's top leaders. And if they're Mm -hmm. not taught these skills, it can be detrimental to a lot of us, which we've seen.
0: Uh, yes, it is <laughs> a great book. Um, not only do I hope our audience listen to, uh, I mean, read the book and listen to the podcast, but lawyers, we've had plenty on this show read this book, you know, Mm -hmm. most of the lawyers we've had on this show have been leaders in Mm -hmm. in some capacity and doing really great work. Mm -hmm. Um, But everybody needs a little training. And so he introduces, you know, a very specific type of leadership called intersectional, you know, leadership. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we need y'all to grab on to these principles, grab on to the components of this particular type of leadership, and you know, help us get through some of these legal battles we're going to be having over the next few years.
1: Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, 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 that's for sure. Um, and like one of the things I like, he said within the book is that a lot of times we think leadership is a uh, something that can be natural, um, but he's like, it's a learned skill, and so we need to be able to help individuals, you know, fine tune that skill set who are gonna be in these positions. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, without further ado, uh, ready to get into it, Deb? I am ready.
0: All right,
1: we'll catch up with y'all afterwards. Lawyers play a central role in our democracy. For instance, more than a third of the current members of the U.S. House of Representatives, and more than half of U.S. presidents and current U.S. senators are lawyers. Moreover, in recent years, lawyers have taken center stage in public debates and discourse on issues ranging from immigration to police brutality to international trade. Today we interview Professor Anthony Thompson, author of Dangerous Leaders, How and Why Lawyers Must Be Taught to Lead. Anthony Thompson is professor of clinical law at New York University School of Law. And today we talk about what it means for lawyers to be leaders in the 21st century, Specifically, we discuss his concept of intersectional leadership, characteristics of strong leaders, and how diversity can contribute to effective leadership. Welcome back, Professor Thompson.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Yes, uh, thanks we're for joining us. So
0: happy to have you back on and discuss your, your new book.
1: Yes, dangerous leaders, how and why, how and why, and lawyers must be taught to lead. Um, so we're really excited to talk to you about this book. Uh, but you know, since the last time we spoke, we've gained quite a few new listeners, and so many of them probably do not know who you are. So, would you take a moment to kind of reintroduce yourself to the audience and tell them a little bit more about yourself?
2: Sure, I have been on the NYU law faculty for close to 25 years these days, and prior to that, I practiced uh, law in Northern California. I was a public defender in a town just north of Oakland for over about a decade and then did some civil rights entertainment and other uh, civil law practice and private practice and taught for a bit at Stanford before I moved to New York. And I currently focus on areas of the intersection of race and criminal law in my teaching and on issues of leadership and write in those areas. And so I'm excited to be with you.
0: Yay. Uh, so speaking of leadership, we are here to discuss your book, Dangerous Leaders, How and Why Lawyers Must Be Taught to Lead. Um So before we get into the details of the book, can you tell us what inspired you to write Dangerous Leaders?
2: It's a great question. Um, I have spent the last 20 years, in addition to teaching here at NYU Law School, um, working with Fortune 100 companies globally. And a lot of what I do works on strategy execution and leadership development. And what I have found over the course of those 20 years in my work outside the law school is essentially that lawyers lead. The reality is whether you're in the City Council, County Commission, whether you're in nonprofits, what we find is that lawyers are often selected to lead. And when we look at higher office, of the 45 presidents, 24 have been legally trained. Um, Current Congress in the Senate, 53 of the 100 senators have law degrees, 160 of the 435 representatives have law degrees. And in fact, of the Fortune 500 companies, 46 lawyers serve as CEOs. So there's something about the title of lawyer. And I think there's something that the public believes is part of our legal education that prepares lawyers to lead. And I have found that oftentimes legal education does not enhance or help develop leadership skills, it impedes them. And so the book was an attempt to look at some of what I believe are the legal academies impediments to teaching leadership and offer another model. I've taught a course called leadership for lawyers here for a number of years, and both in the context of that course, but also um, not In a a whole course, it focuses on leadership. But but in my other courses, I try to do some leadership skill building and development, because I think that one of the mistakes that we make about leadership is we think that you get it naturally somehow at birth. Um, And the data suggests that leaders actually can be taught. And so um, I try to offer another model and another approach to both legal education, but to leadership more generally.
1: Mm, Yeah. And even like reading the book and and hearing... You know the statistics with lawyers in these leadership positions. I really never thought about it before, and I'm like, yeah, lawyers are in a lot of these top positions, whether it's with companies or whether it's with education or whatever nonprofits, all of the above. Um, they're ascending in line positions. position. So I think it is crucial to have this discussion about teaching leadership, and even even with my own, um, you know. Teaching, I'm thinking now about from your book and then from your course, I'm like, you know, maybe I might develop a course um, in the sociology department for our students about leadership and things like that. Because I think it's going to be really important to have for our students and probably for the, the faculty and, and college as a whole. Um,
2: yeah, I, I think, think was uh, I think we make mistakes when we don't do that. Leadership's leadership is a skill, right? It's a skill. And if we can begin to exercise leadership from all points um, Young people get better at it. I, one of my colleagues was flabbergasted when I offered, suggested that we offer a course on leadership. And, and he said to me, you know, don't people go into the Marines to learn leadership? And it was this sense that, you know, we can't possibly have anything to offer. And in fact, um, there's a lot we can do to begin to teach people. I, I believe that you one of the sessions that I do for companies is called leading without authority. And that is that leadership is not a title. But it's a a frame of mind. It's a set of skills. And I want young people to begin to exercise those skills. So I like the notion across sociology, political science, history of us thinking in the classroom, what can we do to begin to enhance people's emotional um, intelligence, people's sense of diversity? We often squirrel diversity over there in the corner. We're going to deal with that separately. Mm -hmm. In the book, I make the argument that diversity is is a leadership trait and that thinking about diverse perspectives is something a good leader should do.
1: Mm hmm. So, yeah, before we get into, I guess, the the leadership style that your book is centered around, I think a good kind of starting point for our discussion is highlighting the different types of leadership you kind of describe in your book. I guess the traditional types of leadership, mainly with transactional and transformational. So can you tell our listeners about those two types of leaderships and uh, give them a little bit more information about it?
2: Yeah. So kind of if you look at leadership theory, um, two prominent forms of leadership One is transactional leadership and the other is transformational. Transactional leadership really posits that a leader sits atop the pyramid and that a leader can give the benefits of the organization to individuals who follow her leadership pattern, leadership skills, her leadership um, articulation. And the second transformational leadership envisions, again, someone who at the top of the leadership pyramid is able to inspire her followers to follow them and to um, to get a benefit from the charismatic leadership of a transformational leader. What my theory of leadership, intersectional leadership, where it departs from that, it, it obviously shares some of those components. But where it departs from that is that we, we live in a, in a world now where um, you're leading from different positions. And I, and I think that this notion that the person at the top of the pyramid is going to be all knowing and all powerful. Isn't the world we live in in the twenty-first century? And so, intersectional leadership calls for identifying traits that are dissimilar to the traits that you have, um, and and sets the pattern of leading. Um, as colleagues, leading from, from different positions rather than from the pier- top of the pyramid. And for those people who are in leadership positions, it's to actively identify a leadership team in which the skills that you don't have are embedded in the rest of the team. And that that has been a very successful model globally. Um, companies that I've done business with in South Africa and India and China um, have all begun to think differently about how they're going to lead. And I think um, it really is the future of leadership.
0: Mm. Uh, I can definitely uh, see like those different types of leadership. I, I feel like I have, you know, been, I guess, a worker, you know, under different types of leaders in terms of like the transactional and, you know, transformational. Uh, mm-hmm. But I would like to talk a little bit more about your concept of intersectional leadership. You know, what is that and what makes it different from the transactional and transformational?
2: It, some of it is a great question. Some of it comes from, um, our ability as lawyers and, and where we how we're trained and and often lawyers are at the intersections. Right. And so I was just talking to a partner in a law firm this morning and he was there trying to focus on issues of adversity and change within the firm. And one of the things that I was pointing out to him was that generally in the law and in business um, leaders, pick people to to be part of their leadership team that remind them of themselves. Um, It's why we lack diversity of perspective, of gender, of race, often in leaderships of organizations. And so what intersectional leadership has five basic premises. The first is that um, an intersectional leader relies on a team that brings traits and styles and experiences that are dissimilar to the leader. Um, It's to round out the perspective of the leadership team. The second component is similar to the first, but it's distinct. And it calls um, for leaders to seek opinions and viewpoints from the least experienced person or least experienced individuals um, in the organization and from outside the expected set of viewpoints. And the reason for this is that. You, once you get someone in an organization, whatever that organization is, they tend to adapt to the culture and tack to the center. So, by seeking out opinions and perspectives from the newer uh, members of the team, newer members of the organization, you get different viewpoints and it can expand the thinking of everybody. It also um, the third component of intersectional leadership calls for genuine collaboration um, where leaders can subordinate their own interests to services of the greater goal. And what I mean by that is we often engage in teaming. I I have a lot of colleagues in law classes who put people together to work on a project. and They say to me, I'm teaching collaboration. I say, actually, you're teaching teaming, which is good, but different collaboration really, for lack of a better term, hurts. It means that you're sacrificing resources, revenue, or recognition for the greater good. And and team leaders are often reluctant to do that. And if you think of divisions in a company or the corporate versus litigation side of a law firm or units within government, there's, there's often a competition. And so, supporting those interests of that unit to the greater good really is what collaboration means. And the fourth component of intersectional leadership is also very uh, difficult to find in leaders. And it, it is a perspective that is suspicious of easy agreement. I actually, in the book, relate it back to Abraham Lincoln and a team of rivals, but they're contemporary um, examples of it. Ken Chenault when he ran, uh, was CEO at American Express, is a lawyer by training. He went to Harvard Law School and he had a reputation and a habit of being very suspicious of agreement. If American Express was going to engage in a new um, plan or program and everybody agreed, he would cancel the meeting and say, let's, let's find some disagreement. Um, sometimes the role creates the need or opportunity for dichotomous thinking, but even if it doesn't, the, a good intersectional leader will challenge assumptions and, and challenge quick agreement because you want the, I always tell lawyer leaders, you want the best arguments to be made in your team, in the room with the door closed, not when you go outside to the opposition. And so you really want to challenge your people to give you the best arguments against long before it has to be tested by combat. Right. And finally, the intersectional leader must act. And this is often the hardest thing because so much happens behind closed doors. But an intersectional leader must act act with moral courage. Much of the work of lawyers specifically in leaders in general, happens behind closed doors. Truly intersectional leaders will d- adopt processes and disciplines that force them to question their own judgment and make sure that they're putting kind of the greater good first. And I I give some examples in the book, obviously, but um, examples abound where people's personal interests are in conflict with the role that they are, they're in as a leader. And so for me, those are the five fundamental components. I also think that you know these skills not only produce good leaders, but they produce good professionals, good lawyers, good professionals, if you embrace them.
1: Yeah, no, I, you know, I want to talk about um, kind of one of the, I guess the earlier components, maybe the first one when you've kind of mentioned diversity, you know, it's not just with race, class, and gender, gender, but also kind of with diversity of thought. I think in the book, you says, um, you know, involves developing and relying on a team that brings traits, styles and experiences dissimilar to the leader. Um, and, you know, you, in the book, you also describe how current research has shown that the more diversity corporations have, I think even with the Fortune 500 Hundred companies, etc. You know, the better they typically do, than do bet they do typically do better financially uh, compared to their competitors. Um, and so we've also seen how a lack of diversity in other areas, such as fashion, film, etc., have been problematic too. So I guess I want to discuss this a little bit more. Um, can you tell us why sometimes diversity, you know, isn't the first thing that comes to mind when people are in leadership roles, and and how that lack of diversity can make it harder for people to actually lead? Yeah, so
2: this could be a whole section of the podcast, <laughs> yeah, sure. right? So, so I think um, l- let me pull it apart in a couple different ways. First, personally, right? I think that habitually, what leaders do is they say, "I'm a good leader," so let me pick someone from my team that's a lot like me. Hmm. And it, you know, they want people who have the same social experiences, the same academic experiences. Um, so it creates a very myopic view of whatever the issue is and the leadership. Uh, goal and initiative is. So I think kind of not underplaying how difficult it is to really think outside yourself and to say, I really need to identify people who are different than me. When you lay, if I just talk about African-Americans, for example, or Latinos, um, when you have the overlay of segregation that is so profound in this country, um, it's it's scary and difficult sometimes for leaders to say, I'm going to have people on my team that are very different. But as you quite Accurately said, the, the the truth is, in the greatest downturns economically, more the more diverse teams have thrived. I'm going to give you an example of why. Um, I, I, I was I do a fair amount of work, in, or I used to. I haven't done in a, a bit in South Africa and in India, and mm. in what we used to call developing nations. So what happened was prior to the 2007 economic downturn globally, um, these were countries with leadership in economic and political sectors who kind of had to make do, had to learn to hustle. Well, suddenly, when the world's economy changed, they began to be the innovative ones. They were the ones who were surviving. You got the BRIC nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, that suddenly became a thing. And... What we began to see was we need to take some lessons from what we have developed what we have termed developing nations, because they're the ones who are actually doing well in this economic downturn. And so companies that were thoughtful and that had really diverse teams and had different perspectives tended to do better between two thousand seven excuse me, two thousand seven and two thousand nine. And so that's just one example in this country. Um, I I love that you bring fashion and music and film because we lose track of the fact that Hollywood uh, just coming off the Oscars last night, um, is, is begun just now in the 21st century to think about issues of diversity and they're doing it at a snail's pace, but to be thoughtful about who's in the room when the key decisions are being made is critical. Um, one example I use about the failure, um, of the Amazon deal here in New York city was that the mayor and and governor got together and they buried the hatchet and were able to sit down and work out a deal. But nobody looked around and said, who else is in the room? Hmm. Do we have people with different economic perspectives? Do we have diverse people in the room? So when these ideas were put forward in the public domain, people were surprised and people were shocked. And I think quite frankly, the principals were too, that there was so much pushback. They thought we're bringing 25,000 jobs, but they hadn't, really had a diverse room to talk about these issues broadly. And it came back to bite them. So I think both from an economic standpoint and from a political standpoint, um, getting as diverse a room as possible just makes good business sense.
0: No, I I agree. It does make uh, good business sense. And I appreciate those examples, Ty, especially after the Oscars. Uh, One (laughs) of the (laughs) suggestions... Uh, One of the suggestions you make for an intersectional leader is that they create a healthy operating tension that encourages the team to ask tough questions. And I agree that, you know, it's very necessary to do that. But I had a hard time figuring out how a leader could actually go about doing it. So, like, what are some practical steps or tips, you know, a leader could do to, like, create that healthy operating tension?
2: It's a great it's a great question. So I think it happens on three levels. On one level, you create a discourse when you are in your leadership meetings. I encourage um, leaders to have um, constructive confrontation. What I mean by that is um, it should not be that at the end of every or during every leadership meeting, people are joining arms and singing kumbaya, that the expectation should be that there is some pushback. And if you just think about the bad leaders, all of us have been supervised by bad leaders. And if you just think about the bad leaders we've had, they want to crush any dissent. They want to crush any, um, anything that strays from the rhetorical line that they're putting forth. And what I'm suggesting is that at one level, you want to encourage that discourse. The, at the second level, it has a substantive issue, and that is who's in the room? Um, If you have what I call an echo chamber in the book or a bunch of yes men and yes women, um, you aren't going to get that kind of constructive engagement. And so even if you try to set the discourse, if you don't have the right people with the right perspective, um, then something's wrong. And then the second piece, the third piece in that is you have to, in the way that you interact with your team, and and I don't just mean the leadership team now, I mean deep in the organization, if you are not allowing people to raise questions with you about the way you're doing your business, they're not going to feel comfortable in a leadership team meeting going after your initiative. So you have to demonstrate that you have a thick skin and that you're willing to, you invite some level of pushback. I mean, if you think about the, I I use this example in the book, and I like it when I'm um, doing work out in the world, consulting work. Um, Abraham Lincoln took the people that he defeated in a presidential election and put them in his cabinet. Let's Hmm. fast forward to the 21st century. Um, You know, can we imagine Donald Trump putting Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders in in his ca- and, you know, Kasich from Ohio in his cabinet and having a conversation. Mm-hmm. It's not the kind of leadership we see today. But I think that you have to be conscious about it and you have to be transparent about it. And I think that's another part of this intellectual intersectional leadership. It's it's transparency.
1: You know, no, I definitely can agree. And um, I think You know, this kind of brings you to the next question. And I I like the chapter where you kind of focus on, you know, personal ambitions versus the greater good. And, you know, I think this is important for several reasons, Uh, but I find that, you know, one of the criteria that I use to gauge whether or not someone is a good leader is by looking at that very dynamic in a lot of ways, especially we're talking about how it can impact like the, the black community, et cetera. And, you know, even, you know, how much of the decision making is really for the people or how much is it for you to gain like personal gain? And in the book, you know, you talk about things and, and dealing with like the election effect. And that has me thinking of like the democratic candidates for president in 2020 and really trying to dissect a lot of conversation about how much are what they're doing for the people or how much are they or what they're doing is trying to gain this seat, seat uh, in, in the White House. Um, so can we elaborate a little bit more on that? You know, uh, can we talk a little bit about the importance of teaching future leaders how to deal with this idea of personal ambition versus the greater good and, and why that's important?
2: It, it, it's a Tough question for me. I'll tell you why. Um, I believe in second chances. You know, I've written a book and a number of uh, scholarly articles on reentry. So you have to, if, if you truly embrace the belief in second chances, you have to, even for politicians, say we have to give some um, ability for people to grow, right? So you, so, and change their positions. The flip side of that is, I think, particularly as we're teaching young people, you have to say to people, if you want to leave. Um, leadership is, by definition, not an inward-looking, self-promoting um, vocation. And so, what are the things that you're doing to create checks and balances on yourself and systems, so that and discipline, so that you can force yourself to question your own judgment as you're making decisions? My my issue with the candidates um, is that some of them have been uh, very consistent in positions that I think are dangerous positions with regard to criminal justice reform and some other areas, Mm -hmm. economic development. And so I think the test for them is to say, so you're articulating a new position. Uh, What was the basis of that? And when you articulated this different position up to this point consistently, what changed that position? But I I do think that, um, particularly for young people who want to lead, we've got such bad examples of people who have been you know, focused on their own personal gain. Um, that I, I think it's very important to kind of have conversations that talk about these disciplines. When you talk about communities of color, there's often so few opportunities um, for real advancement economically and in other ways, the political spectrum becomes a, a method of you know, personal advancement. And so I think that we need to be careful about that.
0: I agree. And I mean, I'm pretty yeah. sure we can't get into it today, but I love to hear your take on all of the candidates.
2: <laughs> I really. <laughs> I have an opinion, a strong opinion on some of them i've interacted with a lot of them over a lot of time and and i am hoping that when we begin to do candidate forums our folks do their homework mm-hmm. because there's a lot of questions to ask about positions that have changed or have suddenly become new positions so i'm excited about this new campaign season i think that um the country's ready for a change
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i i agree and i like the note you said research less research and hopefully bhd can you know keep people on the right track to like dig deeper yeah Um, But towards the latter half of the book, uh, you spend some time discussing emotional intelligence. Uh, What is emotional intelligence? You know, why is it important or why did you feel it was important to mention and how can leaders display it?
2: It's a great question and difficult um, proposition. So um, EQ, this emotion, this notion of emotional intelligence, really. Um, i think is intersects directly with um, my theory of leadership because the five components of intersectional leadership really be- require you to be self-aware and increasingly what we're seeing is the most more successful leaders are self-aware they they understand what are the things that set them off emotionally and they um, create prophylactics within their leadership team for that that they understand where their own weaknesses are and i, I think that there, there's a fair amount of literature these days on emotional intelligence and um, like all things some of it's smoke and mirrors but some of it is is really based in hardcore science and useful but I think when people are thinking about leading, um, I recommend that they spend some time doing some reading on emotional intelligence and and focus um, Daniel Gorman Goldman is one of the great authors and he's written a couple books on emotional intelligence but I, I think that being aware of how you react to stressful environments. You know, with lawyers, it's, it's you know, when a deal is going to be made or when a case is going to go to trial, um, you see some lawyers begin to snap at their teams and snap at their, and, and not just lawyers, but, you know, all leaders. So being aware of how you function under those time constraints and adapting for it is really important. Um you know, we no longer live in a time where we're going to keep leaders at any cost. Uh, the Me Too movement has shown that leaders that we know have engaged in misconduct over time um, are not going to be able to sustain their leadership position. Um, you know, I'm of the position that we have not created a zero tolerance around issues of race and difference the way we have around sexual harassment and we need to explore that. But I think that emotional intelligence is part of that, is, is knowing who you are under a range of circumstances and being able to deal with that and building in support within your team for that.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's, I think it's important. And, you know, I think a lot of times the focus is on things like IQ, but I think bringing emotional intelligence to it and kind of regulating your emotions in stressful situations, like you said, is important. I even think that, you know, it can be applied to like other professors like law enforcement as well. Where we see a lot of these issues coming out and maybe having forms of assessments or things like that, you know, in the academy to, to really have these conversations about emotional intelligence, but also maybe um, figure out if some people are at more risk than others as far as being put out into the field if they're not emotionally ready to do so. I think that's exactly
2: right. I You know, I, I I talk about the the image I want you to draw up is with lawyers and I think in a lot of professions, we think about um If you think of an axis, we think of the horizontal or the the vertical axis of an eye. We want the deepest substantive person. We don't care how much emotional intelligence they have, but we want somebody with deep technical knowledge. So think of that as a vertical single down deep what we haven't looked for is the horizontal axis what I call the the top of the T which which says that you have a sense of yourself and you have an organizational knowledge across the organization and we have to make e- those equally important at least in the law the technical expertise is kind of table stakes it's what we expect for every lawyer we won't see many lawyer leaders that weren't the best deal makers or the best trial lawyers but we also have to equally say whatever your substantive technical expertise is, you need that organizational and self-awareness as well. And we need to put as much weight on that. I think that's the change that I really see that's necessary as we begin to select leaders.
1: Hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, you know, that covers most of the questions we have. Is there anything that we didn't discuss that we may have missed or something that's on your mind about the book that you want to address?
2: Yeah, there is. And and I, I have two geniuses with me. And so I can't forego the opportunity to ask you guys. And you, you touched on this a little bit. How I, I when I wrote this book, um, I was motivated by the lawyers that I had seen that needed this but you've hinted at maybe within your own disciplines, um, thinking differently about leadership might be helpful. Are there ways in which you think thinking about leadership the way I've tried to articulate it in the book and in this podcast are there ways that that can be helpful in your own disciplines?
0: I absolutely. So there was one of the components where you discussed, you know, not just talking to people, you know, your colleagues, but you also, I think you used the term like people on the ground. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and I think in research, we often, we research people on the ground, you know, we come up with solutions for them, but we don't actually work with the people on the ground to enact any of these solutions. We think about research, you know, as something that I feel like exist in a cloud because journals, um, those are clouds that a lot of people don't have access to. So I think in terms of researchers, I feel like we need to do a better job of not just researching people on the ground, but um, there's actually a movement toward like more participatory research and using research to actually create change. And I, I think that's what we could do a little bit better.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I agree, And kind of one of the things that made me think of when you said or talking about how this kind of this zero tolerance policy for other things outside of like things dealing with racism and, and being in academic settings, that's kind of one of the things I've had to grapple with, especially dealing with students, is finding, um, I guess, leadership. So I think, what is it, Title Title IX and things along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have p- particular admin roles on, on campuses where people handle things dealing with like sexual assault, sexual harassment, et cetera. And then when you have students bring up grievances around maybe racial discrimination or some kind of racist harassment, uh, most institutions seem to not be adept or equipped to handle these kind of cases as well as they can, you know, uh, dealings with sexual assaults and stuff like that. And that's one of the things that I would like to see more of um, having, I guess, institutional things in place that when students or faculty, whoever of color have these kind of issues and grievances, that it can be handled in a formal process. And if, if need be some kind of, you know, uh, uh, consequences or or. or punishment or mandates or whatever it is, sanctions be handed out to the perpetrators of these acts, you
2: know? So let me say to you before we close two things. One, that leadership comes from a lot of different places. This podcast for me is an example of demonstrating leadership. And so I see both of you as leaders. And let me also say how much I appreciate you both for putting the energy and effort that you have put into this podcast so that a range of issues can reach our folks, you know, wherever. So thank you.
0: No, thank you uh mm-hmm. for coming on again. But also, you know, sharing this book uh for the audience. Uh I think it was really powerful that you opened the book with the Flint example and just really created a narrative around why it is important for, for lawyers to step up and how, you know, they're there along every, you know, step of the way when you know, some of these crises happen. I thought that was really powerful and really inspiring. They actually do have your book in the law library at Harvard. I I looked it up. So hopefully people are reading this because you're right. When I see who's in leadership positions, who's changing this country, lawyers are at the forefront. So thank you for writing this. Mm-hmm.
1: And and I, I would like to say one of the things I really, really appreciate in this book, and I feel like a lot of books don't really do that are of this nature is like towards the end of every chapter, you literally give like practical advice and suggestions of how people can either educate others on this topic or apply it in their own uh, form of work or whatever. And I really, really appreciate that because a lot of times I feel like people, we do a really good job at, um, articulating the problems and the issues, but not enough as far as talking about how which ways to fix it. And I think you really get some really good steps. Somebody reading the chapter, and then, okay, I can actually have a beginnings as far as how I want to implement this and, and change some things in the way I operate or others. So mm-hmm.
2: I think that's really cool. Well, thing. I appreciate both of you. And thank you so much for the nice words. Mm-hmm. Of course. And
0: so, you know, where can people find you? And this is a question that we haven't asked before, but is there a preferred like website where people could buy the book? Because some websites are more responsible than others. So how can people find you, find the book, et cetera?
2: So, great question. So the book's available on Amazon as almost everything is. And then in addition, the Stanford Press website has um, both available of the book. And I actually think there's a key on the website for a discount. So that's a good way to get it as well. And as far as our work here, um, the two places, the Center on Race, Inequality and Law has a website tab on the NYU School of Law's website and it keeps our programming, uh, our recommended reading and a range of things there. And so I invite people to come and check us out.
1: Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, we thank you, Professor Thompson, for taking time to join us. And, and, you know, all our listeners, I'm sure you got a lot out of it. Um, And he put up the information. We'll put up the information on the website when we release this episode. So you all can click the links and find the books and all that good stuff. So thank you again, Professor Thompson.
2: Thank you very much, both of you. Have a good day. You too. So, yo, yo, Dev,
1: what you think about Professor Thompson joining us yet again for an awesome conversation?
0: As always, it is a pleasure speaking with him. He drops so many gems, and you know, he's just you know so knowledgeable and so pleasant to talk to. So, of course, it was great.
1: Yeah, yeah, he's always great to chat with, and yeah, like uh, you know, uh, not you just understand why he's in the position he's in and the change he's making. <laughs> it's very clear, you know.
0: Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. it is clear why you know he's trying to shape the next generation of lawyers, and he's clearly the person to do it.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, So, you know, what are some things you took away from this conversation?
0: You know what I find interesting? Um, So from the conversation and, you know, reading uh, the book, you know, when he started out the intro talking about where lawyers fit in like the Flint crisis and how they're leaders. And he just went on to explain, like, when you look from lawmakers to, you know, CEOs, lawyers are everywhere leading And a long time ago, I've said this before, I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to go to law school. And part of the reason I wanted to go is because when I thought of lawyers, I thought of leaders. You know, that's who I saw in the public eye. And it was interesting because a lot of people actually discouraged me from going to law school for that reason. They were like, Mm. only go if you want to practice law. And it, it wasn't that I didn't want to practice law, but I saw this degree as a degree that would set me up to be a leader in whatever field I chose. And it's refreshing to see this book written because it kind of validates how I view lawyers from the very beginning that it's not just about the law. It's also about knowing how to lead. Like you need to know the law, but you also need to know how to effectively lead and that we are essentially putting lawyers in leadership positions. So we do need to think of law degrees as also like a leadership degree. And in my opinion.
1: Yeah, no, I think a lot of truth to that, you know, in the book, he really highlights, I think law schools do a really good job at highlighting and teaching students the technical aspects of law and how to operate in the law and do things with law, but not enough of that, you know, the top of the T, as he said, and things like emotional intelligence, things of how to be a leader and and dealing with uh, things like personal ambition versus the greater good. And you're right. I think even realizing from this book, even my own personal experience is that a lot of lawyers do get into these dynamic positions or diverse positions. And it's interesting to see that law schools really don't, address that or teach them, in fact, how to be leaders when a lot of them do become leaders. And even like, I would say probably in graduate school, I started to question like, dang, maybe I should have got a law degree, you know, because of the kind of things I wanted to do. And the impact I would like to make, you know, I think academia really just left this feeling for me that like, hmm, people really don't aspire to be leaders per se when they're in an the academic setting. It's more about research and getting things out there. But, you know, I, I think you and I are similar in the ways Like, we want to make an impact. You know, we want what we do to mean something. We want to be out. We want to touch the people. And we just don't want to sit in this, you know, office all day uh, and with four walls and just ri- writing papers and grading papers and all that stuff. Um, I don't think that really satisfies who we are and our character. So um, I think this is why even I mentioned in the interview, this is why I probably want to teach a class like this, um, even in my own institution for students and things like that. And maybe it'll catch on to faculty because I think it's just important to have these conversations, have this dialogue and show like what it actually means to be a leader instead of just assuming that it's just like, oh, you just know, right? You just, you're a leader. And I mean, some people are naturally gifted leaders, but I think majority of people should, and even them, they should learn how to utilize their, their talents in the most strategic and effective ways and and so having a course or having these kind of discussions or workshops I think will be beneficial to us all
0: actually uh, my undergraduate degree was in leadership and organizational effectiveness mm-hmm. and it was about studying organizations studying leaders and you know we used to always do these case studies so that's why this book is always also interesting to me because it's like I study leaders and I see how it is constantly a theme that comes up into my um dissertation research or, or my research. I'm, I look at governance and leaderships and, and how leaders make the decisions they do for diverse populations, essentially. So
1: hmm. And, you know, I'm really like, oh, he got me headed on the edge of my seat because I really want to, you know, hear what his uh-huh. viewpoints on these candidates. But, you know, <laughs> we gonna, when, when we chat with him, you know, off air, we're going to get to the yeah. bottom of that because I, I really want to know. <laughs> yeah,
0: there might have to be some off air conversation. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I, I do want to know. And but like you said, it's like research. And I, I, I feel like one of the gems that was in there is people can grow. But you need to ask them, where did this change come from? Like dig into that. Don't just like accept it at face value. And that's kind of what I've got from what he was saying. Like, mm, you know, we don't have to like discard people. Growth is possible, but let's let's, you know, kind of dig into there and
1: figure out what's going yeah, on. Yeah, yes. I mean, it made a lot of sense. And I think that, you know, we've said this before on BHD. It's not like because we're critiquing somebody's past that we're like saying we don't want them to win or that we hate them or that we can't forgive them. But it's like, well, you've done you've done this and we kind of know wanna know wanna know why. And then like you said, what changed this new uh, you know, rhetoric you're speaking about these topics in which you spent maybe 10 years going in one direction. And this last two, you've been saying something else. And so at least be transparent and clear as far as why you made this change. And that way, instead of acting like those past 10 years of decision-making didn't happen, (laughs) you know, I think that's kind of silly just even for us consumers or voters to just accept that, you know, like, oh, well, this is how I feel now. And I'm not going to address these last 10 years. No, we need to talk about it. You know, we need to understand your thinking, especially if you're going to be the leader of the free world, I think it's a fair ask. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. We (laughs) hold our leaders to high standards.
1: Yeah, very true. (laughs) Very true.
0: Um,
1: But no, this was a great conversation per usual. Um, If you haven't, or if you're thinking about it, go definitely purchase uh, Professor Thompson's book, Dangerous Leaders. Uh, You know, we'll have the link on the website attached to this episode so you can easily click it and then also just get it mailed to your house and and visit all the work he does as well Um, but other than that if you haven't yet um, follow us on social media at bhd podcast we are on twitter facebook and instagram you can go to our website www black and highly to keep up with all our latest content uh we're pretty much on every uh uh podcast platform if you want to listen to us please review and rate us on iTunes if you haven't did that yet that really 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 helps us out a lot and other than that um, continue to share our content share us with your friends share us with your family and share us with your enemies and as always continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.
0: If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations visit our website blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, just topics and participate in our discussion forums
1: follow us on Twitter, Instagram And Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.